Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. You're at the right place. This is Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'd like to welcome you aboard. And I'm Chris Chimes. Hey, Ben. And hey, listeners. Uh, ben, I'm going to dispense with the chit-chat and get right to the news. we got lots to cover. And while I don't want to single out any airline or put any one former CEO on the spot, I'm going to. What in the French toast is going on at Spirit? Well, obviously, Spirit is in a difficult time right now with all the cancellations they've been dealing with. You know, the company has said it's a you know, planets aligning in bad ways issue with IT issues, labor issues, weather. It makes me sort of wonder how they had thought about the schedule they're running and so on. You know, an airline like Spirit, which flies basically about one trip a day per route they fly, makes it very, very difficult when they have operational problems. If an American or Delta has to cancel some flights in many cases or Southwest, they may have, you know, five or eight frequencies a day so they can cancel three of those, reaccommodate people on other flights and at least get people there the same day if late. And in Spirit's case, if they cancel a route, most likely they don't have a plane flying between those two cities that day. And the next day's flight is probably pretty full. So it's going to take them a long time. The other problem they have, or challenge they have, I should say, is that they don't have what the industry knows as reprotection deals with other airlines. So if American Airlines has to cancel a flight and Delta has a flight operating in the same route, American and Delta have agreements where American can send their customers over to Delta, you know, with some stipulations, of course, Delta will carry them. And the same is true in reverse. And every once in a while, they settle up on who owes who what. But Spirit doesn't have those kind of deals. So on the one hand, they've got a schedule that makes it really difficult to recover from when they cancel. They don't have reprotection deals, so when they cancel a lot of flights, they leave a lot of people stranded. And it has certainly embarrassed the company. It certainly put them in a difficult position. They have talked publicly about a reboot, and I assume what that means is looking at ways to maybe put some more redundancy in the schedule or in their crewing or things like that. But it's a real tough situation. Their CEO, Ted Christie, went public with sort of talking about that, you know, it's not their best hour and they're trying to get out of it. And I think they will get out of it, but they've got a lot of damage to repair. That's for sure. Well, and I, I think it's probably compounded and you could speak better to this than, than I could, Ben, but you know, they've got a lot of infrequent flyers that are generally customers, especially at peak times like this in the summertime. So their ability to kind of navigate on their own and their their willingness to get frustrated a lot more quickly is probably compounding this a bit. 
You know, that's another good point, Chris, that you make. I think spirit carries more repeat customers than a lot of people think about because people are loyal to low fares, maybe more than they are loyal to spirit as an airline. But you're right. And since they always carry a leisure base, leisure customers just don't fly as often as business customers. And as we've been talking about on the show for a while, there seem to be a number of people who haven't flown in a long while who are flying, who have probably been enticed by the low fares that Spirit offers. And so you add that to the mix and their, you know, their, their flights canceled. They're not as savvy within the airport environment. They have no status in frequent fire programs that might help them even get a faster phone call to someone else, although the industry seems to be having problems with all of that. So I think you're right. That's just another thing that sort of piles on that makes an operational meltdown like this much more difficult for them to handle. Well, as our loyal listeners know, our show goes live every Wednesday morning. We record a few days before, so we're, we're at a somewhat of a disadvantage to talk in real time, but we'll all be watching this. I think we're, it's safe to say we're all rooting for him. Uh, no one likes to see this happen, and uh, hopefully uh, it gets better quickly. Ben, I want to remind our listeners that the specialty banking firm of Seabury Capital Group boasts a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So Ben, I want to take a trip down memory lane again uh, with another one of your old haunts. And this one's faring much better than Spirit. Uh, Panama-based Copa Airlines just reported Q2 results and turned a net profit, albeit with the help of some special items. Ben, I trust you've been following their operations. Uh, they really don't have a domestic market as almost all of their lift is outside of Panama. But how do you think they've been able to navigate the last 18 months and get to this relatively good place? Copa is such an interesting airline. They're run by a very smart management team. For a while, they had sort of this relationship with Continental as as well. And that's why their planes, if you look at them, look a little bit like the current United planes, right, in terms of the tails anyway. But what they do is unique in their space. You're right. They have almost no domestic market. I think they fly from Panama City to David, another city in Panama, but that's about it. But what they do is they carry Central and South America to North America mostly. Yes, they do some flying within Central America and within South America as well. But their biggest business is carrying South and Central America to North America. And in that, they have kind of a couple advantages. First of all, they fly a all-narrow-body fleet, and that gives them a cost advantage over carriers who are flying from places in deeper South America to North America who have to use a wide body equipment, piece of equipment to make that trip. Panama is also geographically really nicely situated, almost directly south of Florida. So a lot of their flights are in the sort of three to four hour range and you get a lot of South America and a lot of North America with that. And because they're all connection or pretty much all connection, as well as whatever Panama local traffic there is to all these places, they it's, I'm not going to say other airlines ignore them. 
but they kind of do in the sense that they don't feel compelled to match a long time connecting flight, say from Santiago to New York, which Latam may fly nonstop or American may fly nonstop, right? They don't feel completely compelled to match the Copa price on a connection through Panama. So they have this cost advantage of a pretty low cost fleet and pretty low cost labor generally, and an all narrow body fleet, which helps them with the cost. And then they get, I'm not going to say they get pricing advantages all the time, but because they're so unique in what they do, people, meaning other airlines, don't push on them as much because they're really the only ones doing that. The in To the extent they compete with other airlines, it's they compete with other connections. You know, they might compete on a connection through Panama with a United connection through Houston, for example, or a Delta connection through Atlanta. That's the way they compete. And that's a little bit different than competing on a nonstop basis. So I think through low costs, unique markets, and sort of having this niche that they're really the only player in, that's what's gotten them back to sort of a profitable place, even though it's, you know, as you said, with the help of some special items, but they're still doing better than a lot of airlines in the world. The Latin market is a fascinating one. And we talk about it a little bit but probably not enough, and it's right under our nose. So um, we ought to be looking at that uh, region a little more closely once in a while. And I know we were, we're talking to uh, Felix Antello, the uh, CEO of Viva Air Group out of Columbia, about joining us for a conversation on an upcoming episode. So hopefully our listeners will enjoy that as well. Well, I think that's right. And uh, and maybe Felix will have a different view on how Cope has been able to do so well since since his airline is more of a direct competitor on some routes, that's for sure. Very much Chris, so. what did you think about United's announcement that it will require its employees to be vaccinated for COVID-19 by September? That was a fairly bold announcement, I thought. Well, I think bold is is the key word. And we've talked about this uh, multiple times, but, you know, Scott Kirby is not afraid to be bold. He's been waiting, you know, 15, 20 years to be CEO and he's finally the CEO and he's going to make smart, quick, tough decisions. He has every intention to propel United to the top of the pile as far as U.S. carriers. You know, Frontier kind of followed saying to their employees, if you're not vaccinated, you must be tested regularly. Delta had done some things with regard to new hires, but clearly United's position is different from most of the other U.S. carriers. I think this is ultimately going to be driven by a combination of market forces and public health practices. You know, healthcare and hospitalization costs are going to impact all employers, including airlines. And there are higher premiums for smokers. So I just have to wonder at what point, whether it be with open enrollment seasons coming up or in the future, you know, what do employers say with regard to employees who don't want to get vaccinated and their healthcare costs and their premiums? Those are personal choices, smoking and not taking a vaccine, and I respect them, but there are also higher costs to healthcare and to employers. So there wasn't a lot of noise out of United's Union so far. I'll be interested in kind of the reaction as this moves forward. Um, as it relates to vaccine mandates in general, you know, the U.S. court system has generally upheld previous mandates, whether it be for smallpox or measles. You know, I'm old enough to 
have extended family members who battle polio, another vaccine that was mandated. So this is going to be an interesting space to watch. Scott Kirby and the United Management team are willing to take it on. We'll have to see how this plays out. I I agree with you. The one thing that's a little bit different about this, I think, just a little, is I don't understand the full science, certainly. I'm not a scientist or a doctor, about what the protective antivirus load is in a body that has had COVID. I've thankfully never gotten COVID and I am vaccinated, but there are people, including Senator Rand Paul, who says, I don't need the vaccine because I've had the virus and I can show that, that my body has the antibodies. I don't know what that means in terms of requiring employees to be vaccinated or not, I'm wondering if there's going to be maybe another company, whether it's an airline or not, that maybe gets close to what United did, but not fully and say, prove to me that you have antibodies, not prove to me that you've taken the vaccine, whether that would be maybe taken a little bit easier by some employee groups. I don't know if it would or not, Yeah, but I I do agree with you that it's it's a real interesting space to watch. Yeah, I mean, the antibody question, again, is one of those that hasn't been, I don't think, very scientifically explained. Um, Certainly, there's there's better information out there about how the vaccines are working and the vaccine manufacturers are leading a number of studies with regard to the efficacy and the effectiveness six, eight, ten months out. It seems like the, the major stumble is still the emergency status of the vaccines, and so as soon as they are given full approval by the FDA, some of these conversations might shift as well. I agree with you. Chris, one decision that should be easy is clear. Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journey when you use clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus clear signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Okay, Ben, we couldn't let this week go by without hearing your thoughts on the Frontier Airlines incident with the flight attendant smackdown. Maybe we can call it the tape down of the rowdy passenger that was duct taped to his seat. What'd you think? Well, the first thing I thought is who knew that airlines had so much duct tape, right? (laughs) Because because American had had that issue where they had duct taped a passenger to the seat and now Frontier did this. Is every flight attendant like throwing a roll of duct tape in their bag now, just in maybe, case? Maybe it's a new part of the training for flight attendants. So. I know. Maybe someone could sell like, you know, logo duct tape. You've been taped to your seat by Frontier. <laughs> Low fares done right, right? <laughs> it's a, no, but I think that's an amazing reaction to, you know, tape someone to a seat. I wasn't on that plane. I'm not sure what that customer was doing that the flight attendants thought the right answer is to physically restrain this person well, and that they he, had the duct tape and were willing to do it. I think he was pawing a couple of the female flight attendants and kind of did the same to the male flight attendant that finally took him down. Yeah, that that's what they said. And so I can see that there might have been incentive to, to want to do that. I thought it was interesting that they said Frontier had suspended the flight attendants. That language to me sounds, you know, we think you did something wrong. 
which maybe they do think those flight attendants did something wrong. I would have more expected to say the flight attendants are on leave with pay while we're investigating, something like that. Right. The initial comment sort of came out that the that the company thought this was wrong. They shouldn't have done this in the language they used. That was my reading. Your communications guy, Chris, did you read it that way too? Yeah, but I think they kind of backed off pretty quickly when people came to the flight attendant's defense. So I couldn't help but think of my late father who used tape for everything. And I was <laughs> out at my parents' home a couple of weeks ago and there were like three big drawers full of different kinds of tape, including duct tape. So he would have been very proud that his uh, traditions were carried on. I, I think it's a, a sadder statement about kind of where we are, that flight attendants are having to think about how to restrain passengers in unique ways when these things happen. I agree. And at least one good thing about this is it didn't seem this was about like this one was about wearing a mask or not, right? It was worse behaviors by this customer, which, exactly. make, which makes me think, you know, yeah, flight attendants have to deal with a lot of things. And and if taping a customer to their seat is the only way to deal with it, that does say something bad about society, not necessarily those flight attendants, but of society in general. Well, there were a couple of very funny YouTube videos about this. So um, not that we want to make light of it, but it certainly got people's attention. Well, and let's, I guess we can just hope that the flight attendants didn't borrow the duct tape from the mechanics at front. <laughs> <laughs> With that, listeners of this show certainly know who Chris Sloan is. Chris Sloan is our roving correspondent who likes to use his life to take inaugural flights on new airplanes and new airlines and such. And we caught up with Chris about his passion for ghost airports. That interview is coming up right after this break. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential. And once again, we're with our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan. And today he's going to talk to us about the whole concept of ghost terminals. Chris, what is a ghost terminal and what fascinates these to you? Well, a ghost terminal is basically an airport terminal that um, is only inhabited by ghosts or not people any longer. It's been closed. And for many of a variety of reasons, they're still standing. I've always just been fascinated by airports in general because they're 24-7 you know, many cities of bustling activity, but what happens when the day comes, when the light switch happens and they go from fully alive and operational to completely gone, completely dead. And um, it's kind of a fascinating to go from a place with activity energy one second, and then just literally an hours later, um, it's empty. And that's the way it's going to remain until it's probably torn down. That's amazing, actually. So tell us about some of the most interesting ghost terminals you've visited and what you've learned in visiting them. Well, interestingly enough, I visited one very recently. It was the New Orleans Louis Armstrong International Airport's 1959 terminal that was in use until November of 2019, right before COVID. And um, that airport holds a lot of significance and a lot of kind of mystery and romance to me. So that was really fascinating. And then we were on vacation in Greece and we visited the old abandoned Athens International Airport 
which is at HelenCon. And it was really fascinating too, because this airport uh, was the sole uh, international airport for Athens and uh, was replaced overnight 20 years ago. And yet large parts of it are still standing. And there are also even aircraft still there that are permanently marooned. Oh, that's very, very cool. Have you been to the 1940 terminal at Hobby Airport? Oh, yes. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic uh, terminal. It's also got a great um, aviation museum, especially if you're a fan of all things Southwest and uh, Continental. Have you been there? Yes, I visited there with my son on our last visit to Houston, and we had a great time. And with that terminal being right on an active taxiway at Hobby, it's kind of great because while you're in the terminal, you see these Southwest planes landing every five minutes and occasionally a Delta regional jet. Wow, that must have been cool. Was the DC-3 still out there too? Yes, the DC-3 was out there as well. So what are the ghost terminals that you know about that are on your bucket list? Well, I mean, as I said, New Orleans was certainly on my bucket list. I mean, New Orleans has a real special place in my heart. My, I was married there. My wife's family's from there. It's our second home. And, you know, this is a city that actually uh, always embraces, you know, uh, the dead. Um, when they put the old terminal to bed, as they called it, they actually had a jazz funeral on its last night of operations. And so, you know, with a full second line performance and it went down through the terminal and, and there was gigantic Louis Armstrong character and a whole like a second line funeral like you actually see in the city. And it was just a big, crazy party in a wake. And they literally put the terminal um, to bed because three hours later, the new terminal would open. So in a city like New Orleans, you know, where you go to visit the, the cemeteries. I mean, as Bob Dylan said in his book, Chronicles, Volume One, he said, you know, going by, you try to be as quiet as possible. Better let them sleep. The past doesn't pass away so quickly here, you know, he was writing about the New Orleans cemeteries, which are legendary people tour them. And you have an airport that is kind of like one of those cemeteries that's kind of lying there in repose, complete vacant, and yet almost fully intact, waiting for its final fate to happen. And that was a, you know, it's a really kind of a fascinating time machine. So, you know, I got to fulfill one on my bucket list. And, uh, you know, it was really uh, bizarre being in that terminal because, you know, they still had it powered up. They had some of the in-flight announcements and the PA announcements actually still uh, still going like uh, curbside and picking up and unloading is for passengers only. Violators will be towed, which is kind of amusing because there's nobody there. And the uh, FID screens were all powered down, but you could still see burn-ins in them. So you could still see flights. Uh, The last flights actually burnt into the screens that had operated and um, the, uh, you know, the power and the air conditioning was still up and it was cleaner, by the way, than it's ever been. But, you know, you'd see things like a ticket stub or a newspaper that was from the last day of operation or a receipt from a restaurant because literally it closed at 1 a.m. and the new one opened three hours later. So it still exists and it's powered up and it's being used by the airport's offices and security and the emergency response center. And they're going to actually try to preserve the historic parts of it. But, you know, this is a very, very historic terminal that was really the front door of New Orleans. And to see it kind of lying there, lying in state, um, was really eerie. And, uh, you know, as a side, what was really fun is I'm an FAA Part 107 drone operator. And so when I wrote the CNN story, I also shot video and was able to fly my drone all around the terminal, which you don't get that opportunity too often. You know, and by the way, I'm not the only person who discovered it. Uh, back in May, it was repurposed for Red Bull. And it was turned into the landing strip uh, skateboard park. And they literally turned the baggage claim and one of the concourses and the ticketing area into a skate park. And, uh, you know, you had skaters skating down escalators and it was like an obstacle course. So it's been used for movie locations. So 
um, there are others uh, who are really interested in that. So that was one that was on my bucket list and, and I was thrilled uh, to be able to visit. That's great. So one of my favorite personal airline stories was my wife and I went skiing one weekend in my career where we flew into Stapleton Airport and then flew out of DIA because in the couple of days we were skiing, Stapleton closed and the new Denver Airport opened. <laughs> and so the reason I'm bringing that up is do you feel sort of a bit of remorse when, when an old airport is actually torn down? I mean, it's sad, but it's the you know, it's the price of progress. And, um, but I, I just have to ask you, so that was really fascinating. So that was in 95, you actually were there for one of the last days of Stapleton and then flew out of one of the first days of DIA. That's exactly right. In fact, it was the first day of DIA that we flew out. Really? So what was that? I have to ask you what that, what, what it's like. I mean, particularly the baggage system, which was famously delaying that airport. What was, what kind of chaos was that like? Well, it seemed like a mess because a lot of people were complaining, but we didn't check bags, so we didn't see it. The thing I thought is when we were driving out to DIA, having, you know, we rented our car in Stapleton, but we returned it at DIA because the rental car companies knew that the airport was changing stuff. And as we were driving out there, I was just surprised how far out it was. And I said, did they build this new airport in Kansas? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. Well, you know, I actually visited the old Stapleton Airport about four or five years after uh, services had been discontinued. And um, it was the first time I'd ever been in a ghost terminal. And it was really interesting because, uh, well, certainly it was off limits. And I wouldn't say we got in there legally, but uh, there there was a little opening in the fence and a little door that wasn't locked. And, uh, <laughs> you know, unlike uh, New Orleans, there was nothing powered up about it. It was dark and the clocks were stopped when the master power had pretty much been shut down in most of the airport. Uh, the only people there apparently were a couple of security guards who got wise to us. But I mean, you know, when you ask about, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, when you talk about Stapleton or you talk about the old Austin airport or you talk about the one I just visited in Athens, Elincon, those are different than New Orleans because you're talking about an entire airport that's replaced by a new green field. You know, that happens so very, very rare. So, you know, when you see an entire facility like that closed down, it's not just the airport, it's all the interesting surrounding buildings and services. It's really eerie, especially when there are airplanes uh, left behind, as was the case in Athens. Uh, there are planes that are marooned and they can never leave. Um, I was also at Kai Tak on one of its very last weeks in operation. And there was, you know, aircraft left behind there uh, because, you know, once they start cutting the runway and turning off the, the lights and, you know, transferring the codes, the, the IDA codes, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, they're, they're done. And um, that was really, I have to say that was really fascinating seeing that in Athens. So are there other international terminals that you know of that you've not been to yet that you hope to get to? Well, I mean, yes, there's one in, uh, the, one, I think the most famous one is in Cyprus that has been closed since 1974. And it was actually closed, I believe, during there was some form of military, something happened you know, I forget exactly what, but there was like a military operation there. And what people say is it's still very, very much intact. I mean, obviously it looks like, you know, almost like a parkour uh, place where people that are interested in like in kind of urban decay, but yeah, that's one that's, you know, on a number of people's bucket list. And, uh, you know, I'd like to return to Kai Tak. I returned to Kai Tak, which closed in 1997. I returned to that in 2000. And at that point, you know, what I remembered as the, uh, you know, the main uh, ticketing hall and headhouse had been converted into a nightclub and a bowling alley. So, uh, you know, that's kind of fascinating. Um, you know, uh, I think the, uh, 
I think the bowling ball, uh, the bowlers are some of the people that were handling my luggage because uh, every time I'd fly through Kai Tak, something would be destroyed. But that's uh, that's still one, um, you know, that I know is out there, you know, that very much I'd like to see. And then there's, you know, there's some that have been repurposed into other things. But, you know, those are two that come to mind. But I would say visiting the one in Athens was the most interesting because not only is the airport partially intact, but there's, you know, there's a 747, there's a 727, a 737 that were left behind. And they're all in Olympic Airways colors. So not only do you have a dead airport, but you have a dead airline. It's the National Airline of Greece. And those are the only place in, you know, anywhere that that fleet exists. And it's all still painted in original colors. And, um, you know, plus there's a few other things, some odd, like a BAC-111. So the fact that these aircraft, you know, the engines are off of them. Unfortunately, it looks like they're going to be scrapped. Uh, there is an auction as they as they redevelop the airport. But, you know, and the terminal there is still intact. And that's a Saranen terminal that was designed by the same architect who designed Dulles. And it's really, you know, a marvelous piece of brutalist architecture. So, in it, and one of the cool things is you still see the signage for airlines that are defunct, like Olympic, and you see Sabina, and then you see Delta Air Cargo and um, with the old widget logo left behind. And so that it's just, you know, it's just, it's very, very nerdy. And, uh, but, you know, I think for people who enjoy urban decay architecture, um, it's really uh, fascinating. That's great. I, I would love to see those uh, international mobile lounges at Dulles become ghost international mobile lounges. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's a pretty brilliant idea. You know, um, I would personally like to see what happens when they, I've heard that they, at some points, um, there's no photographic proof of actually driven them out on 276. And, um you know, to actually get them up to speed. And the people have actually, they've actually been driven off of airport grounds, which I think would be kind of fascinating. Well, that's pretty cool. To wrap this up, Chris, if any of our listeners are excited by this idea and they want to visit some of these properties you've talked about, any tips you want to give them? Well, I mean, in the case of New Orleans, it helps to uh, to know the airport director and the airport team. Uh, they're certainly not open to the public, but, uh, you know, calling public information is, is a good way. I mean, if people want to get to Athens, which is fascinating, I mean, it is in the middle of a residential neighborhood and it's being redeveloped. So you can, you literally can drive around that perimeter and see all those airplanes and, and see the terminal and, you know, I'd be careful. I mean, there's a few little, uh, you know, there, there can be some, some vagrants and some uh, folks trying to, you know, sleep in the, the old terminal, but um, that, that one is really fascinating over the public. Uh, the one in Cyprus, you can no longer get in it. Um, same with the Athens. I mean, they're very hard to access. You used to be able to access the airfield. But, you know, a lot of these are still uh, open to the public. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the Houston Air Terminal, which is a fabulous one, um, is there. And one of the most beautiful ones um, is in New Orleans, the Lakefront Airport, which was only used commercially for 10 years. And that is about the best place in the city to have brunch. And it's a beautiful Art Deco terminal that was used for commercial services that sits right that sits right on the lakefront. And um, it is uh, it's really really spectacular. And and then there's ones that are very interesting, like here in Miami, the Miami City Hall, until 19, uh, what, until the mid-19, until the mid-1940s was the Pan Am uh, terminal for the, the flying boats that went to South America and Latin America. And that's, again, it still uses the City Hall and that's on Dinner Key. And when you go there, you see the original hangars, the logos are still there. And you can even see the tracks in the, uh, in the boat basin where the, uh, the flying clippers used to be pulled out of the water. And that's very, very Historic. So there's a there's some interesting ghost airports around, and I'm going to tell you about one other really weird, obscure one that is down here in South Florida that Ben, you probably know about, which is the Dade Collier SST Airport. Are you familiar with that one? Too? I am familiar with that one. So you should you should can you you should I don't know tell the tell the crew the listeners about that one. 
Well, that, yeah, that's an, that's an amazing facility. And I was there a long time ago, so you probably have a better description of it. Well, I mean, back in the 1960s, when the Concord and SSTs were going to be the way of the future, the idea was that MIA uh, would basically build a replacement airport, particularly for SSTs out in the middle of the Everglades. That sounds like a great idea, right? You're going to take an environmentally unfriendly aircraft and build an airport for it out in the middle of one of the most environmentally sensitive places in the world, the Everglades. So it was obviously never built, but what was built was a I think it's about a ten to 12,000 foot runway that still exists in the middle that's uh, staffed by just a couple of people. And it's used for touch and go and training. There's no terminal. There's no services. I, I don't believe there's uh, fuel. But when you're out in the Everglades, you would see, especially particularly in training and 10 to 20 years ago, quite a bit, you'd see L-1011s and big DC-10s doing touch and goes and for training. And you still see uh, aircraft out there in the middle of nowhere. And they generally do not stop. Um, they literally just do touch and goes, but it's a full size runway. And it was, uh, you know, one piece of the airport, um, you know, that was the only piece constructed the same way with the New Mexico City Airport, where that's a ghost airport before it was even completed and built. Um, that was going to replace uh, the current one that's, uh, you know, on hold or permanently canceled, depending on who you ask. So there's even ghost airports that uh, that were in progress that uh, never got a chance to, uh, you know, to be uh, to be born. So. It's kind of a bizarre uh, little hobby, but, uh, you know, we're, we're not called out geeks for nothing. Well, Chris, we really appreciate this, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be fascinated. Certainly is interesting, the idea of going to airports that don't work anymore, and his fascination with them, I thought, will uh, appeal to some of our listeners for sure. I'm surprised he could find an airport terminal that didn't have people in it right now. So, Yeah, that's right, or a runway with no terminal, right? Well, Airlines Confidential is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. It's time for our listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. No, don't say, play those funky white boys. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, the first question is from Justin Jordan from Arizona, and it's about the spirit meltdown, his words. Hey, guys, I've been listening to your show since the beginning. With Spirit's epic meltdown this past week, I was wondering, Ben, if you'd be willing to share your experience with meltdowns like the summer of 2015. I'm also curious how much heat the C-suite guys usually get on events like this. The saying is, crap rolls downhill, but sometimes it must go uphill. So how much does the C-suite get involved in recovery, and how much responsibility lies with them? That's a good question, Justin. Thank you. I think the C-suite, certainly at Spirit, gets involved quite directly. Their CEO, their operations officer, their head of maintenance, their head of airports, I think we're, we're all sort of on duty 24-7 through this crisis, I think they're all working hard with the teams at Spirit to figure out what's going on. Most airlines actually not only 
sort of expect the senior leaders to sort of be involved in operational challenges, especially that affect lots of customers, but actually train for that. Spirit talked about treating this like a hurricane. And what I read into that was that when they have a hurricane, they have a real formal plan they follow about who gets involved putting a special room together, a special team together that includes very senior members of the team, including the CEO. Because when you're based in Florida, you have to deal with hurricanes once in a while. And I read that as they're taking it that seriously, meaning that the C-suite is really involved. Now, when I was at Spirit, the airline was a little bit smaller than it is now, but I think a lot of things are probably still fairly similar about the way they run things, which is they don't have enormous staffs excess around. So when things go wrong, everybody gets involved, and that would include the C-suite, and I'm sure that's true in this case too. It's a great question though, Justin. This is not the sort of situation when you're canceling half your flights and the images on the airports are, you know, all these people stranded and it makes national news, even places you don't fly. This is not a case where anyone in the C-suite there can hide. Yeah, it was a great question by Justin. Uh, I would just add that uh, if things like this didn't roll up to the C-suite, uh, an airline or a company has got a bigger problem than what's going on at the airport. So uh, the C-suite better damn well get involved. Um, I know going back to a meltdown at U.S. Airways, Ben, I think you had left by the winter of 2004 uh, <clears throat> when we were in the last months of our, our bankruptcy restructuring and there was a sick out by the, the baggage handlers at Philadelphia over Christmas. And that was, you know, the, the, the top two stories on the news were the tsunami in Asia and the tsunami of luggage at Philadelphia airport over Christmas. We had a lot of executives, you know, we went up to the airport, uh, helped in the baggage rooms, handed out coffee and donuts to the passengers in the terminal, thanked them for their patience. We're doing what we could, but you know, absolutely executives have to get involved and they better get involved. So. Well, and Chris, I bet you'll remember one of the guys with you from the headquarters at U.S. Airways at the time was Barry Biffle, who's now the CEO at Frontier, yep. right? Yep, yep. And uh, uh, the one lesson I learned from that is never buy a piece of black luggage. So, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you'd go to ask a passenger, you know, well, what did your baggage look like? And they'd say it was black. And I'm like, I wanted to say like, lady, there are 50,000 black suitcases back there. I'm not sure I can help you. Yeah. Who stole your car? What does it look like? It had four <laughs> wheels, right? <laughs> well, Chris, this one came in as a finer wine, but I think it's worthy of a bigger discussion. I know what my thoughts are, but I'm interested in yours. It's from Kevin in Los Angeles. Hi, Ben and Chris. I'm a big fan of the podcast and the cadre of guests that I get to learn from each week. Listening to the podcast is like taking a free online course in the sporty game. Another nice ref reference to our great interview with Barry Eccleston. Anyway, I went to law school at USC, but have never met more powerful legal minds of jurisprudence than in the weekly finer wine section of Airlines Confidential. My wife booked a one-way ticket from Amsterdam to LA in KLM's business class. It was booked directly on klm.com and the cost was $1,200 
We have a very handsome and smiley six-month-old named Shy, who my wife nurses, so the extra space in business class was important for them on a long-haul flight. In the USA, we are sophisticated flyers, and I understand that you have to add an infant on a PNR, which is a process we've done before. In the USA, there's no cost for that, and that's what we were anticipating on KLM. We tried to add it on KLM's website when we booked, but when we tried to add that special service request, or SSR, it said that we had to call their customer service number. Over the next five days, we tried to call KLM's customer service department each day. Each day, it said too many people were on hold and to call back later. It would not even give us the option to wait on hold. I even tried different times each of the five days, no luck. After not getting through, we decided just to arrive at the airport early and handle it at the ticket counter. The ticket counter informed us that a fee is associated with adding an infant and that it is 10% of the price. So we just assumed it would be 10% of what we paid, which should have amounted to $120, 10% of $1,200. A surprise, but something we could stomach. However, the ticket counter agent said that we had to pay 10% of the fee of what the ticket cost that day, which was $6,000, and made the addition of our baby $600. I made all of the arguments that A, the website wouldn't allow me to add this, B, I tried calling customer service as instructed, but they literally wouldn't allow me to wait on hold. I explained I had no option other than this and asked if this was truly their process. To her credit, the ticket counter agent very much understood my complaint and basically said, I'm sorry, we screwed you. There's nothing we can do. Chris, what do you think (laughs) about this? It it certainly is a finer wine, but I agree that it's more, should have a bigger discussion. Well, Kevin, thanks for writing. And it looked like from your email, you work somewhere in the broad travel industry. Um, And I've got a brother who's a Trojan, so I've spent a lifetime giving him digs. I'm going to give you a little one at the end, but there was something she could do, but there was nothing she wanted to do. So uh, I I agree that, that they could have worked with you on this. So uh, my my bigger concern and my bigger issue is you should never hold a baby. Um, Clear air turbulence is real. Um, I was personally involved in an incident on a beautiful spring day of, pleasant flight, standing by the lab, waiting to use the restroom. We hit some turbulence. I was thrown up into the ceiling and then landed on all fours on the floor uh, within a matter of seconds. There's no way you can hold a baby in that kind of a situation. So I always tell parents, you know, I know you think it's more comfortable for the baby. It's not, and it's certainly not safer. So um, I, I think KLM could have worked with you, but my bigger concern and my bigger recommendation is always buy a seat for a baby and don't hold them. That's good advice, Chris. My biggest concern about this question really is, you know, wh- what should have been done is the fact that they made them pay, made Kevin pay 10% of the walk-up fee. 10% of the fare Seems like actually a reasonable fee to bring a baby right. if you want to hold him on the lap. But I don't think Kevin was was wrong when they assumed it would be 10% of the price they paid. And my argument to KLM would be the difference between 600 and 120 not the fact that he had to pay anything. Well, I mean, they weren't a walk-up customer. They 
they had a ticket. So that should have been the basis for the add-on. I mean, they didn't find a baby in the terminal and try to sneak him on. So, um, <laughs> you know, he was totally in the right with regard to the expectation, but um, I just don't think KLM was interested in working with him. So it's, it's interesting. And certainly if anyone works at KLM listening to this podcast or anyone knows someone, if anything, it probably should just be clearer on the website of what the cost is to carry an infant. Because it looked like Kevin tried to find it on the website and it didn't even find how to do it or what it was or didn't even see a statement that it'll be 10% of the fare. Well, listeners, finer wine is next. But first, Airlines Confidential would like to thank TA Connections, which partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. TA Connections monitors and tracks room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy for your company and only pay for what you consume. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, this finer wine is from Ashley in Las Vegas. I was on an American Airlines flight traveling with my two children, ages 12 years old and 12 months old. During the flight, a flight attendant approached me and said my 12-month-old son could not watch the musical cartoon he had on his tablet without headphones because it was bothering others on the flight. The attendant made it clear he did not care that I was just trying to keep my son entertained on the evening flight to prevent him from screaming on the four-hour flight. If this is the representation of the airline, I don't feel parents are welcome to bring their children on airline flights. Well, Chris, I'm a dad and I traveled with my son when he was 12 months old. And so I understand how important it can be to keep a child like that engaged in a flight and not have them scream. And just the paranoia that I'm sure any parent has with a young kid about, is my kid going to be that kid on the flight, right? All that said, I think this is a wine. And the reason I think it's a wine is it's pretty obvious that if you have a show playing from your seat without headphones, other people are going to be bothered by that and may not be as uh, open-minded about the fact that it's for a 12-month-old. My question is, why didn't they have sort of over-the-ear comfortable headset for this 12-month-old? I think kids that age use headsets. They use maybe even use headsets in his house. I understand why he couldn't have used earbuds that maybe the airline had or something like that. That's It's just hard to expect from a 12-month-old. But you could per- certainly put a set of headsets on a 12-month-old. And I'm surprised that The parents didn't have that and sort of expected that their kid could just play this tablet with open sound like that. So I actually think this is a wine because I think they could have better prepared, Ashley could have better prepared to entertain her child without disturbing other people on board. And I don't think it's a representation that they don't want children on the flights. I think it's just a representation that they don't want children disturbing other people on the flight. That's a different thing. Well, it's a good thing she wasn't flying KLM and had to pay $600 for the kids. So, um, <laughs> yeah, kind of, sort of, you know, I, I put this barely in the wine column. So I, I get your point. Um, 
and it was an evening flight. So they probably had the lights turned down and, and the like. So it, it's tough flying with kids. And like you said, you've done it. I've done it. Ashley's done it. Um, but you got to come prepared. So that's, you know, whether it be the Cheerios or the games or the headsets or whatever else you got to come prepared. Well, unlike Ashley, we want everyone to feel welcome on this flight, but it's time to get ready to land. I'd like to close with my weekly shout out. And this is to my friends at Expedia. They just reported Q2 results, which were up 273% year over year on the rebound and travel, especially it's growing vacation rental business. We hope that's the kind of momentum that continues to build across the travel industry. Great shout out, Chris. And that's good news for the industry too. My shout out goes to five people, Ashley Cronkite, Robert Simicak, Sean Husmo, Lauren Aldridge, and Lauren M. And I apologize if I butchered any of your name. But these five people won a year of free travel on United Airlines because they got vaccinated. United ran what I thought was a very creative campaign that proved to us you got vaccinated and will put you in a lottery. And these five people won uh, free trips on United for a year. They each wrote about where they're going to go and such. And they're real winners, I think, not because they won the travel on United, but because they got vaccinated. <laughs> so that's my shout out. There you go. See everyone next week. Thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.